Welcome. Let's um, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thankful for our, our Savior, thankful that we can gaze on him through the pages of your word, and one day we'll be able to gaze on him face to face. Thankful for uh, the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf. And um, Lord, we could not be right with you apart from his finished work, and so we praise you for your grace and salvation, and we ask that you'd pour out your grace on us now as we seek to understand your word and and to be better interpreters of your word. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed because we are rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about interpretation. We spent the last two weeks doing that, and um, we're actually going to spend the next uh, probably seven doing that as well. Um, this is more an overview of interpretation, and we're going to get into some of the more details as we go. But um, <coughs> I mentioned in the earlier class that we interpret automatically. We we do that in our own context when we're in the same time and place as other people, that we can understand how people, what they're trying to get across based on what they're saying and the time period in which they're saying it. So, for example, let me give you this um, this idea. I had a friend in 94 who was a green driver. He got a ticket on 94 for going 94. Okay, so I had a friend in 94 who was a green driver. He got a ticket on 94 for going 94. And you, very likely you immediately interpreted what I said, and you probably did it properly. When I said green, I could have meant that he had green skin. Or I could have meant that he was green with envy. Or I could have meant that he was green in the sense that he was growing. But as you probably guessed, I meant that he was green in the sense that he was still young. He was a new driver. And when I said driver, you understood that I wasn't talking about a golf club or something that turns screws or um, that he was a motivated person, you know, that he, was, he had this driving force behind him. You understood when I said driver that I meant the operator of a motor vehicle. But the most amazing part of your ability to interpret is that you're able to take those three references to the number 94 and interpret them in three different contexts. Right? I had a friend in 94. What did I mean there? The year 1994. Right? If I would have said that 100 years ago, people would have been thinking I was talking about 1894. Right? Who got a ticket on... 94, what I mean there? Right, on I-94, Interstate 94, and for going 94. And I meant miles per hour there. So, so even though someone from a different time and a different place would have to understand all of those nuances and what are all of, is he talking about when he's saying 94 in these three different contexts, what does he mean by driver? What does he mean by green? Um, you immediately interpreted that because you are in the time and place in which um, that context is. So this is important because as we come to the Bible, we want to make sure that we understand what the Bible is saying in its time and place. Right? We, we've, I've mentioned this before, but I don't want us to miss this, that we live in a time that is over 2,000 years, well, close to 2,000 years now, away from the last writing of the New Testament and about 3,500 years or more from the beginning writing of the Old Testament. So we are well far away from all that context and we have to try to understand things in that time. And also we live 5,000 miles away from where most of these things happened, right? So um, in that sense we live in a, a different place and the culture is certainly much different than than what we are, uh, what we experience today. So this is important because we cannot know what God is saying unless we interpret properly. Um, if we take the scriptures and make them mean whatever we want them to mean, we've essentially developed an idol of our own making, right? We're, we're not actually listening to God; we're listening to ourselves, and so that's why interpretation is so important. Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at this passage and then 
We'll spend the rest of our time looking at an example of how to do this. How to understand a passage um, properly, how to interpret it properly according to what the author intended. Colossians 1, would someone read verses 9 through 14? All right, thank you, Eric. Look at verse 10 there. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of God to please Him in all respects. So here's, here's one of the stated goals that Paul has of his prayer, that we would be able to walk in a manner worthy of God. The question is, how do we do that? How do we walk in a manner that's worthy of God, pleasing Him in all respect, bearing fruit in every way, increasing in the knowledge of God? How do we do that? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer. We do it by being filled, second part of the verse, being filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the way that we fill ourselves with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom, notice the word spiritual and and then the last word there, understanding, we're, we're trying to understand something. And specifically, it is what God has to say. We cannot know what God desires of us. We cannot bear fruit. We cannot please Him in every respect without first knowing what He wants. Right? Just picture a person without the Scriptures trying to please God. How does He do that? How does a person who's never heard the Scriptures, never had a copy of the Scriptures for himself, try to please God? Is He successful in that? Can he be successful in that? Can he be saved apart from the Scriptures? Right. Without a Bible, without anybody ever telling him a Gospel. Can anybody be saved without the Gospel? <clears throat> well, can they? Do we have any texts of Scripture that tell us? Sandra, do we have a text of Scripture that proves that? Right. Romans 10... 17, faith comes by... Right. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but we have to know something about God, right? That He is, that he is Hebrews 11 says, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. How do we know that He's a rewarder? Well, we have to look in the Scriptures. So, Romans 10 says, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. So, a person without the Scriptures, can they have faith in God? But I'm saying, without someone having the Word of God or having someone tell them the Word of God, can someone have faith? No. Right. Everyone knows that God exists. We know that from Romans 1. So no one can be saved apart from the Scriptures. So I'm trying to use this, this extreme example to show us that we can't know what pleases God without the Word of God. Right? When it comes to salvation, it's clearly the case. No one can please God apart from the Word of God. Okay, so, in our situation, we have heard the Word of God, we have heard the Gospel, we've responded to it, and the same thing is true for us. That if we want to know what God desires, we don't set our, book, our Bible up on the bookshelf and go, okay, I'm going to just figure this thing out on my own, right? The, the compass by which we live is the Scriptures. So, uh, we, must, we must have the Scriptures and we must interpret the Scriptures properly. All right, so in order to, first blank here, in order to interpret a given passage, the most important thing is, anyone know from our context, right? The most important thing is context. If we're going to understand a given passage, we need to have context. Three truths about communication you see there. All communication has historical context. This is what I was talking about when I gave the example of the friend. Um, Right? There's a historical context there where we can understand, okay, 94 means the year 94, or 94 means the, the freeway 94. Um, we have a historical context there. Secondly, all communication has literary form. What does that mean? Good. 
So what are some examples? Poetry. Okay, so narrative, history. Okay, there's some allegory. Got to be careful there because we don't want to allegorize the scripture. We'll get to that when we get into some more detailed stuff. But there is some allegory where it's it's a little bit larger than just a parable where there's one single uh, point of context that we need to connect. There's actually multiple points, kind of like the Pilgrim's Progress. We do have some cases like that in the scripture. Um, of course, there's um, uh, wisdom literature. There's uh, epistolary, which is just the letters of Paul and Peter and John and so on. All right, so we need to keep in mind that different forms of literature need to be interpreted different ways. We don't interpret poetry like we do narrative. We don't interpret epistolary literature like we do Proverbs. So we need to keep that in mind. We'll, We'll get into more details on that in the future. Third, all communication has grammatical context. So we need to understand it in terms of its logical units. So how does this fit? How does this word fit into this sentence? How does this sentence fit into this paragraph? And so on. Um, and then when there are difficult passages, we need to interpret those with the clear passages. Um, and then that leads to four principles that really follow along with these three. And that is, first, the text can never mean what it never meant. So we can't force a meaning on the text that it was never designed for. Now, we can draw an application, Right? for, let's say, for the use of of how much TV we watch or how much internet. Well, they didn't have TV and internet, so I guess there's no rules on that. No, there's application that we can draw out from the Scripture. Um, But the the intended meaning does not change. That's what we're driving at. We want to find what is the original meaning of the author when he wrote it. Uh, Secondly, all texts are not alike. This goes along with the literary differences. Um, so just keep that in mind as we're going. Uh, number three, a given text has only one meaning. And then number four, the Bible communicates a unified message. We have multiple authors, 40 different authors, but only one uh, divine author. 40 human authors, one divine author. All right. Any questions on that? Mostly review. All right, the the goal of the reading and studying process is to understand the author's intended meaning. So we want to do that. If we want to do that, it requires five disciplines. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14 because we're going to use this as an example of a passage that we might not think about too much, but, but one in which we can use these tools and disciplines to understand Paul. What was his intention in verses 18 and 19 when he was writing this text to the Corinthian church? And um, in order to do that, we're going to use these five disciplines um, as a framework for how we understand those things. All right? Look at verse 18, 1 Corinthians 14. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right? So... If we're going to understand, we're just going to take this one as an example. You could take any section of Scripture you want. You could take a verse. You could take even a phrase if you wanted to or, or an individual word. But, but here we're going to take these two verses and we're going to start with this first discipline, which is choose words to study. So look for key words in the passage that need to be understood. Key words are those questions that, that indicate the topic of the passage. So if we ask the question of verses 18 and 19, what is the topic that Paul is talking about? Okay, so it's, we, we could even simplify it even more. We could just call it tongues, right? Speaking in tongues or tongues. That's the topic. So here's a good word that we want to make sure we understand. If this passage is about tongues, then we should make sure we understand the word. Now, now there are going to be some words that you already know what they mean, so you don't have to do a, a study of that word. Um, but, but for this one, this would be a helpful one for us to consider. All right, so um, so we choose words to study, um, and then we look for unfamiliar words in this passage. Okay, besides tongues, is there any word in verses 18 and 19 that's unfamiliar to you? 
there's no wrong answer here. Okay? Probably not. Okay? It's going to be different for different people when you come to different passages based on your um, biblical background and your understanding of, of things in the Bible. But, but no, I mean, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So there doesn't seem to be any other unfamiliar words in the passage. So we can skip over that second part, look for unfamiliar words, study. For this passage, we can just move on to this third part, which is to define the key words and the unfamiliar words. So what, what was the key word? Tongues. All right, so first we need to understand what that means. Now, there's lots of ways that we can understand what this means, um, but, but the, one of the best ways is to see how it's used in other contexts. So how does Paul use the word tongues in other places? And we'll get to that here in just a second. And one of the things that can help you in this way is a Bible dictionary. Now, with the, with the advent of the Internet, we have all sorts of resources that you can get for free that will help you in this way. You don't have to spend $50 on a book uh, in order to make sure you have a good one. But it's not a bad idea to have a good Bible dictionary. The difference between a Bible dictionary and a regular dictionary is that a regular dictionary, you're going to look up this word. And, in fact, will someone do that? Someone has access to the Internet. Look up the word tongues and see what kind of definitions come in just an ordinary Webster's Dictionary. Okay. We'll look at that. And what, what I'm suggesting there is that word tongues is used, it may actually have the definition that we're talking about because there are churches that still speak in tongues. Um, so, so it may actually have the definition. But most likely, in a modern dictionary, it's not going to talk about the biblical meaning of the word. It's not going to give you the context in which it was written in the Bible because, remember, the Bible is written... 2,000 years ago and 5,000 miles away. All right? So that's why a Bible dictionary is help, helpful because what it does is it helps you to understand the meaning of a word in a context and then it also lists the passages where those words are. So the word tongues is going to tell you the three definitions. I'll get to those in just a second. Do you have that, Eric? How about just the word tongues? Or tongue. How about just the word tongue? Okay. Is there a second or third definition on that? Okay. Yeah. So on. Any any others? Okay. Good. Okay. So that's that's partially helpful there. But for the most part, in a modern dictionary, what you're going to have is the organ of the mouth, you know, the part of the, the musical instrument, and then, I forget what the second one was. This here is a Greek lexicon of the New Testament, and what this does is it takes all the words in the New Testament, every single word, even words that you wouldn't want to do a, a deep study on, like the word the, but, but it has all of them in here. And um, so I'm going to look up the word tongue here, and I'm going to show you there's three definitions. First, an organ of speech. Okay, so... Sometimes in the scripture it's actually used just like we think of it, right? An actual organ in our mouth that's used to speak. Second way, and there's like they list all the passages where it's, it is that way, about ten of them. Then the second way is a body of words and systems that make up a distinctive language. So they were speaking in, um, for example, in Acts 2, we're going to go there in just a second, but Acts 2, uh, they were speaking in tongues in the sense that they were able to speak in other people's languages so that people from, who had come from out of town were saying, how do they, this is at Pentecost, remember, how do they know our language? How can I understand there's so many people uh, talking and so on? Um, so there's a few passages that do it that way. And the third, the third definition is an utterance outside the normal patterns of intelligible speech and therefore requiring special interpretation. So something outside the, the normal pattern of speech that requires special interpretation. So which is the author using in our passage? I speak in tongues. Is he talking about, first of all, is he talking about the organ in the mouth? No. Is he talking about intelligible language? When he's, Is he saying people can actually understand what you're saying? I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Is he saying intelligible speech there? 
Or is he using the third definition, which is unintelligible speech? See, I'd rather speak five words of clarity than a thousand or, or ten thousand words in a tongue. What do you think the contrast is? Unintelligible speech, right? So we want to just do that. That's the first step. We want to understand. And again, there's other passages that you can look at in a dictionary like this will help you uh, find other passages that talk about it in that same light. Right. Right. And, yeah, and that, that's actually part of the problem is that, the, that what they were doing, the church of Corinth was doing, we're going to get to this here in just a second, but is they were actually speaking in tongues as a way to show their spiritual um, superiority and yet they didn't even have someone interpreting it. And so in that sense, it was unintelligible to everyone else. And the only person who may have understood it is perhaps the speaker. But if you go in Pentecostal churches today, not even the speaker understands what he's saying. Right? It's just, it's just uh, nonsense. Um, so Paul's saying, why do that? What, what edification is there? Right? If, if we are to live for the sake of building one another up, why... Why bother speaking in an unintelligible language or an un- unintelligible tongue? All right, so first, study the word, the words of the passage. We just have one that we needed to work through. Second, study the sentences of the passages. And for that, we want to look at the structure of the sentence. And, and you'll often see me do this when I preach, that I'm sh- trying to show you connections between clauses or phrases, right? I... I um, I'm trying to point out that, you know, this verse is connected to this, and you have lots of connecting words that help us to see that. For example, in verse 19, what connecting word do we have that helps us know that it's connected to verse 18? However, so there seems to be a contrast there, right, between verse 18 and verse 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in contrast, I would rather only speak five words of clarity, right? So... Um, these you can just find. You don't have to have any special tools to be able to find these. You can just look right in your Bible uh, for these. Just notice that every word that God has written down for us is important. So we we try to understand those and how they help us see the connections or contrast between two word two words. Um, so that's that's the context that Paul is is using. We want to look at the larger context. He's trying to show a contrast between unintelligible speech and intelligible speech. Even if it's smaller, right? It's only five words. It's actually more helpful for the church. Um, All right. Study the relationship of sentences. So the structure of the sentences, you know, what is the subject? What is the verb? Often in um, epistolary literature, it's helpful just to understand what the subject and verb is. Uh, Because sometimes, like Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, what is the main sentence there? You know, you have have, uh, 12 verses there that's all one sentence in the Greek language. So what is the driving thing that he's getting at? And sometimes just looking at the subject and verbs are helpful uh, in that way. Um, Then, thirdly, study the paragraphs of the passage. Study the paragraph of the passage. So you see how we're kind of expanding out? We did we kind of did this last week, but you have word, sentence, paragraph, and we're going to get on to the larger section in just a second. But the paragraph of the passage. And that first requires that we define the structure of the the structure of the paragraph or the structure of the sentences. Recognize that um, every word in a sentence is a part of speech. Every every word has. Um, I'm sorry, did I say structure of a of the sentence? It should be define the content. Sorry about that. I'm going back to the previous one. Define the content of a paragraph. So just as if you think about it in terms of a sentence, all the words have logical purpose. And they together form a sentence. So, in a paragraph, all the sentences have a logical um, order that help us form a paragraph. And a paragraph helps us to begin a new thought, right? Where the author is moving from one idea to another idea. Now, it might be a related idea, but 
He's moving from one idea to the next. So, um, again, we, we talked about this a little bit, but in your Bible, perhaps you have these paragraph markers to help you uh, see where these logical units are. In the New American Standard, they're marked off by bold um, verse numbers. In the, new, in the New International Version, they're marked off by indentation, like we would do in our writing. Um, so, so keep that in mind as you're, you're working through these, that these are paragraphs that the author intended to have a single unit of thought with these paragraphs to try to understand them in terms of, of a new paragraph. So recognize that a new verse is not a new paragraph. Okay, remember that verse numbers were not added until about 1,500 years after um, the, the scriptures were written. Those are to help us to find where we're at. And I'm thankful for verse numbers because um, if we didn't have them, we'd have to do like Jesus and really the apostles did. They would say, you know in that section in Daniel where he said, and then they just have to, and then they have to find it. Now, with all the resources we have, maybe we could get by with, with that. But, but verse numbers are actually really helpful to, to find our place to make sure that we're all in the same spot. Um, also recognize that literary type affects paragraph structure. Remember, we have different forms of literature. So in 1 Corinthians, as an example, um, it's written as a letter with paragraphs formed as we would form them in a letter today. Um, on the other hand, Old Testament books such as the Psalms, which is a, a book of poetry, is not going to have paragraph structures like we would have. Instead, they, they mark out, in fact, a lot of the Bibles do this in, in the English, they mark out the parallelism that there is in each line, um, just like we might do with our poetry. So determine the content of a paragraph, and then secondly, determine the message of a paragraph. So just as each sentence has a topic, so does a paragraph have a topic. So what is the topic of the paragraph? Um, because these sentences that are put together make up one paragraph. So in, for, in, our, in our text, verses 18 and 19, form a new thought supporting the author's argument that only understandable words are to be spoken in the church. And in the previous paragraph, verses 13 through 17, Paul was saying... Uh, he was giving illustrations of the foolishness of speaking in unintelligible languages. So now he turns in verses 18 and 19 to show them that they need to avoid that kind of speaking. Avoid speaking in unintelligible languages in the church. And then in verses 20 and 21, he gives a direct challenge to the readers to think in a mature way uh, on this matter. So try to understand the content of the paragraph and um, as you understand the content, you'll, you'll be able to understand the message of the paragraph. All right, any questions on that? All right, next, study the book containing the passage. So we're going out from the word to the sentence to the paragraph, now to the book. So or we could do chapter as well. What is the chapter about? But again, keep in mind that the chapter is not inspired. The chapter numbers are not inspired or the chapter... Uh, divisions are not inspired. Those were added, uh, again, 1,500 years after um, after the Bible was written. So it could be helpful to, to look at a chapter, and we often, when we look at text, we often do it in chapters, and there's some reason for that. Part of it is that's how we read, right? We tend to read chapters when we're reading in our daily Bible schedule. And also, um, the, the people who made the chapter divisions were actually didn't do a terrible job. Okay, there are some spots where it's like, well, you could have gone one verse late. But for the most part, they're actually defining a given topic or story in one chapter. So that's a good thing. So we could go out there, but what we're going to do is go out to the book. So we need to first read the entire book. If you want to understand a given passage, read the entire book um, and do it in one, set, one sitting. And this will help provide the author's flow of thought and other insights that will help in your interpretation. So, for example, a reading of 1 Corinthians reveals that the church had a number of problems, one of which was speaking in tongues. This is not the only issue that he's addressing. Right? There are issues of pride resulting in lack of love, 
chapters 8 to 13, there are issues of division. Chapters 1 to 4, there are issues of immorality and lawsuits. Chapters 5 and 6, and so on. So there's all sorts of issues that he's addressing. Speaking unintelligibly is one of them. So as we see that in the whole book, we see, wow, this is not Paul encouraging the believers, you know, like, just keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're all on the right path. Just keep doing it. No, it's, it's uh, you know, you need to get back on the path towards righteousness. So that will, sometimes we miss those things if we don't see it um, in light of the whole book. So read the whole book in one sitting. One of the things that I do um, every time I start a new series is I try to read through the book ten times. A lot easier to do with the New Testament book than the Old Testament. Um, but but I, I try to do the Old Testament ones at least five times um, just to try to see what the overall picture is. What's the author trying to say here? What's he trying to drive at? And because every single individual unit, paragraph, fits into the larger purpose. Right? And so... Um, the author's not going to just throw something in there and go, oh yeah, by the way, this here's this. No, it fits into his overall purpose of what he's trying to say. So that's, that's why context is important. <coughs> Secondly, <coughs> getting choked up here. Secondly, determine, determine the author of the book. <coughs> determine the author of the book. It's pretty easy, right? Who is the author of 1 Corinthians? How do we know that? <clears throat> he introduces himself right in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. So try to find out who the author is and <clears throat> when he's writing this. Um, where was he when, when he was writing this, right? He was on one of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and we could find the exact location, but <clears throat> the point is find out who wrote it. <coughs> Thirdly, determine the recipients of the book. Um, again, in most cases, this is stated. So who, who are the recipients of 1 Corinthians? Okay, the Corinthian church, specifically verse, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. Right, so we're talking about specific people, not just, hey, here's the whole city, here you go. Or just all Christians of all time. That's not, not Paul had a direct purpose, a direct focus, he's, He's um, identifying a direct problem. All right, that, that helps in us understanding. Fourthly, determine, <coughs> excuse me, determine the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book. Again, we've looked at examples of how to do this. Some of them are stated, and you're not going to find them unless you read through the book yourself. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 20, 31. Okay? And that believing you might have life through His name. So there's a purpose that we understand who the Son of God is, it's Jesus, and that we would believe in Him. Okay, That's the purpose of John's Gospel. Now let's see if everything else fits into what we think the purpose is. Uh, in, in other books, it's not stated. Okay, So we just have to do more research. We have to try to find out from all the clues that are giving, given. And um, in this case, it might be helpful to consult when, when it's not stated or we can't find it ourselves. Then it's just helpful to look at some study Bibles. <coughs> um, study Bibles that would would uh, point us in the right direction. The book of Corinthians, the first book, to the first letter to the Corinthians by Paul was written so that he could address some specific issues that they had asked him, chapter 7 to 16, and that he had found out about from Chloe's household. Okay, we've been looking at this on Wednesday night, so that's how we know that. Chloe's household let him know about some problems in the church. There was some division and there was immorality, so Paul starts with that, chapters 1 through 6. Then chapter 7, now concerning the issues about marriage. Now concerning the issues about, you know, and he, he just goes on throughout the rest of the book. Sounds like he's responding to a specific question that they had in their letter to him. All right, so study the book. Um, so in looking at the book, how does that relate to our specific issue? We're, we're looking at chapter 14, verses 18 to 19. Well, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and apparently the issue of tongues was one that Paul had been informed about and he was aware that they were misusing this gift. So, 
So he's trying to address specific problems when he comes to chapter 14. By the way, I found out about this other thing that's going on. And so that helps to inform what we're, we're looking at here in verses 18 and 19. Finally, study the correlation of the passage. Okay, how does it relate? Correlation has to do with relation. So how does it relate to other passages? So now what we want to do is we've looked at the word, the sentence, the paragraph, the book. Now we want to compare this or correlate it with other passages of Scripture, other books, do you see? So now we're taking the book and we're looking at that in context of the larger um, context, which is the Bible, right? So how does this relate to other passages that have to do with tongues? Because, again, we have 40 different authors. In fact, the passage we're going to go to next is actually not written by Paul. It's written by another author. It's written by Luke the book of Acts. And we're going to learn about tongues there or see the correlation there, but we have to recognize that while there are two different authors and they may have two different um, focuses or emphases in their message, what we do have is one ultimate divine author over all the Scriptures, right? which is God. So therefore... As we look at other texts, we're, we don't have to be fearful that, well, that's what Paul had. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Paul and his teaching, but Luke, I don't know so much. Right? All of these authors were divinely, their writings were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And so we, we can have confidence that when we look at another passage, he can correlate these truths together and help us to see um, see what's going on. So let's, let's do that. Let's study, first of all, related passages. Study related passages. We need to compare the message of related passages. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2. And how do we know to go to Acts chapter 2? Well, again, this is where a Bible dictionary could be helpful. Because the Bible dictionary will help you to see where the other passages that speak about tongues. Or you can just look at a concordance, right? If you want to look at a specific word, tongues, where is the word tongues in the Bible? You know, a lot of our Bibles have at least um, an abbreviated concordance in the back. So we can look up where the word tongues is found in other parts of Scripture. And we would likely find that this is one of the key passages on on the issue of tongues. So let's look at chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> verse 1. When the day of... <coughs> can someone read verse 1? When they had come, they were all together in one place. Verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, please. I'll just read... Just go ahead and read all 1, one through 6. All right, so here, Luke seems to be commending what's going on, right? He's saying they were speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability, right? The end of verse 4, he gave them the utterance. And the result was that actually people were understanding it. That's what verse 6 says. They were hearing it in their own language and understanding it, um, the, the truth for what it was. So in this case, speaking in tongues was actually being used properly. So now, what we would do is, okay, where is 1 Corinthians in time? And where is the book of Acts in time? Okay, the book of Acts is, is um, at least the first part of it here in Acts 2, is right after Jesus died, right? We only have, what is it, 50 days after Jesus died, the Pentecost, seven weeks, 49 days. So, um, so we're probably in 33, A.D. 33. Now you get to 1 Corinthians, which is another 25, 30 years later. And what's happening? The use of tongues is starting to digress, isn't it? 
that is, it's, di- it's, it's devolving into something that's much, much worse. That is, it's not providing edification for the church. It's not, people aren't understanding it. They're showing how, how um, I think Paul gets into <coughs> how, um, how much pride is involved in it. Like, hey, I can do this. The Spirit's working through me. And, and Paul's saying, no, it's not actually beneficial to the church if, if they can't understand it. So I'd rather speak five words of an intelligible language. Um, so we study, um, we study related passages. What, what do these other passages on tongues, how do they help inform the passage that we're looking at? And what we see is that 30 years ago, they were actually being used properly for the building up of, of the, the church. And we could dig deeper into this passage too. Maybe we do the same thing here. You know, we come to this passage and we're still trying to understand, so we look at key words. Okay, what are some key words that we don't know in this passage? What, what are, um, what, what does the sentences have to say? What, do, how do they correlate with one another? What's the idea of the whole paragraph? When was this written? Who was the author of this text? Who are the recipients? And again, um, lots of Bible study tools that we can use for those, but. Um, many of the tools that we need are right here in the scriptures. All right, so study related passages and then finally um, apply related teaching. Apply relating, related teaching. That's your final blank there. So try to develop principles from the passage. So as we talked about, the, the events of Acts precede the writings of, or the writing of 1 Corinthians. And so... This first phenomenon of speaking in tongues is clearly set forth in Acts 2, which is to communicate clearly the message of the gospel to various people in their own languages. That was the purpose. But by the time these couple decades passed, 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing, and now this tongues has not been for the purpose of sharing the gospel or explaining the truth of Scripture to multiple people. Instead, it's devolved to... um, this um, this unintelligible speech speech that was supposedly a big gift for them, right? This is my spiritual gift. I can speak in tongues. And so Paul's letter to the Corinthians is, is trying to correct those errors in their thinking. Yes? I don't know the answer to that. Does anyone know the answer to that? Charismatics believe Pentecostals? I mean, does every Christian at some point get the ability to speak in tongues? Yeah, I was. Paul would probably be a good one to ask because Paul and Tina were saved in that kind of um, in that kind of church until they realized. Um, I mean, obviously, they still have some. Um, they have some vestige of the gospel there, so I think a person can get saved there. But, but then they started to realize that, that this stuff was um, not consistent with what Scripture says. Bill? So there, yeah. Not everybody could would have the gift of speaking in tongues. Okay. Yeah, right. There's as broad as Baptists are in their beliefs, right? From you could say liberal to conservative, 
there's a spectrum in every church, right, in, in, as far as they believe. But, but yeah, that seems consistent with what I've heard as well. Bill? Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, I've never witnessed one in person of someone speaking in tongues, but from what I understand, that's usually what it is. It's, you know, it's unintelligible, um, and there's often not an interpreter, which is, to me is the biggest, the biggest problem. Um, obviously, I don't think the Spirit is still causing people to speak in tongues, but, but if he were, then he would make it clear um, what, what was being said, because... Otherwise, it's of no value to the church. So then after we apply the related teaching by developing principles from the passage, um, which is, you know, the primary purpose of speaking, particularly in a church setting in public, is to edify other people, is to build up other people, is to instruct about the truth of God's Word. So if you're not doing that in your unintelligible tongue, then it's of no value to the church. It's actually detrimental. So there's a principle that we can develop. Now we apply it to our lives. Okay, so do you see how much work we had to do before we get to the application? Sometimes what we do is we take the Scripture and we immediately want to turn it into application for our lives. And that's fine if we understand what we're looking at. But it's more helpful to understand the passage, study it carefully, and then, okay, now I want to seek to apply it to our our lives. It's one of the reasons why we have preaching every week. We want to have someone who can help us to do that, right? We, who can look at the text with us, show us the connection points, show us how this fits into the overall context, and then make application, help us make application for it. Um, all right, and there's all sorts of application that we could draw from this um, about edification and our role. You know, we each do have spiritual gifts that are meant for the purpose of building the church up. So what are those gifts, and how can we invest our gifts into the, the building up of, of the saints? How can we facilitate education or edification inside the church um, instead of allowing, you know, one person just to, to kind of spout off nonsense? I've listed a number of Bible study tools for you, some of which I use, some I don't. Um, one of the most helpful things that you can use is just a plain Bible. Okay? Sometimes we get too stuck to all of our Bible study tools. In fact, that's the first place we go. I'm going to argue in a few classes that it's actually better not to do that, to go immediately to the, the study tools. Instead, let's look at the text of Scripture first. Let's look at the different translations because the different translations actually help us to see the, the nuances in their understanding of the original. And that's helpful because... Uh, for example, the NIV is a more dynamic um, translation. The King James and the New American Standard are more literal. They, they try to get the exact words one for one. The NIV tries to help you get the idea of what was being said. And that's helpful because language, um, there's no one-for-one translation of any language that, that would make sense because we have so much semantic range in each word that's given. Um, so, so I'm not suggesting NIV is the best Bible. I'm just saying it's a good one to consult when we're doing study of the Scriptures. Um, study Bibles are helpful. Um, they have, Obviously, keep in mind that the text of Scripture is inspired. The study notes are not inspired. Okay? Same thing with all these you know, books that we have here. Um, the, they can be helpful, but we need to take everything. We need to check what it's saying against Scripture to see if what they are saying is true, just like we would listening to any ser sermon. So Bible study Bibles, these are ones that I use. In fact, every time I look at a passage of Scripture, I look at what these study Bibles have to say. Um, so if, even if you had one of those, it would be helpful. Um, Bible dictionary, there's a helpful one for you. The, the one I have is actually um, for the Greek word, so that's actually a Greek lexicon, but 
but Unger's Bible Dictionary might be helpful. A, com- a concordance. So if you want to do a deeper study on specific words, how they're used throughout the New Testament, rather than just look in the back of your Bible to see you know, two or three listings, here's a, a Strong's exhaustive concordance would help you find every single time that word is listed. Bible commentaries. Um, again, this is a little bit deeper than a Bible study. But here's one that I would recommend for you. Every man's Bible commentary. In fact, this is what I recommend for this month for the book of 1 Timothy, which we're going to start here in a couple of weeks. Um, or the Expositor's Bible Commentary. This is a little bit deeper than Every Man's. The Every Man's is 1 Timothy. Um, I should have brought a, one for 1 Timothy, but I'll show you Leviticus. So this is Leviticus. It's about, it's about 200 pages. Okay, so this is a lot more detailed. You want, uh, and surprisingly, there are commentaries that are a lot thicker than that. So, um, but this is kind of like intermediate, um, and most of what is in the expositors are pretty helpful. But I usually like to encourage people: if you have a specific book you want to learn, you want to study, come see me. I have, I have a list that our seminaries put together of, of. Um, recommended commentaries for each book of the Bible. So they wouldn't just necessarily recommend a whole series because in a series of commentaries you have a bunch of different authors. So instead, pick out the best for each book and, um, and those can be helpful as well. Bible Encyclopedia. Um, and then you want to correlate truth in its larger whole in all the scripture. That's called systematic theology. We're going to get to that in um, a couple months from now. But Systematic Theology by Rowan McCune, my, um, my theology professor, and then Wayne Grudem is also a really readable um, theology, a lot easier to read than McCune. Uh, Bible Handbook, which is kind of an abbreviated Bible commentary. There's Halley's Bible Handbook, and there's also MacArthur has um, a book about that thick that's just the commentary on the whole Bible. It's basically like his study Bible notes, all in one book. And then a Bible Atlas to help think about the places in the, uh, on the map. Yes? I think uh, one point of knowledge of churches, whether it be a Pentecostal or not, whether they think they can speak in tongues. Pentecost has been just happening through the hand of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, we want to look at the larger context. All right, let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word and how it instructs us. Strengthen us with it and help us to be better interpreter, interpreters as we continue to, to learn and study. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen.